if you would, open your Bibles again with me to Exodus chapter 3. I've titled the message this morning, What is His Name? Last week, we looked at what is your name. Today, we want to look at what is His name. I'd say everyone here is familiar with the birth of Moses. Moses was born at a time that the Egyptians were killing all the, the Jewish babies. They were afraid that the Egyptians were getting too strong and too many, so they were killing all the Jewish boy babies. So Moses' mother, when she gave birth to him, saw he was a son, she hid him in a little basket in the, in the reeds, and Pharaoh's daughter found Moses, fell in love with that cute little baby boy, and she took him, raised him as her own son. Moses, the son of slaves, was raised as the grandson of Pharaoh. You think of that. <laughs> and they hired Moses' own mother to be his nanny. God caused Pharaoh to raise and educate the man who would come and deliver Israel from Egypt. I just love that. I love that God's providence and his accomplishing his will. Only God could do something like that. Cause Pharaoh to raise the man who would destroy Egypt. And when Moses was an adult, he was raised under under Pharaoh, you know, and his, his mother told him who he was, I'm sure, and told him about the Lord. And Moses was educated and, and uh, as a powerful, powerful man. He decided now was the time for him to deliver Israel. He saw an Egyptian who was abusing one of his brethren, one of the Israelites, and uh, Moses killed him. He's, he's not going to put up with this. He thought, now all Israel's going to follow me, you know. But they didn't. They didn't. Moses found out he could not deliver Israel in his timetable by his own wisdom, by his own strength, by his own way. And Moses fled Israel in shame. Went, went across the desert by himself. And one day he came across a well. There's a group of girls there, a group of sisters. They were the daughters of Jethro. He ended up marrying one of those daughters he had to have something to do wasn't in Egypt anymore wasn't it didn't look he didn't think well I'm not going to be the deliverer of Israel my mother must have been wrong I need a job so his father-in-law gave him a job he kept his father-in-law's sheep he was a shepherd at the start of Exodus chapter 3 Moses has been a shepherd for 40 years 40 years and that is when Moses met the Lord Moses saw a bush that was burning but was not consumed and he met the Lord in that burning bush. And the Lord tells Moses, now you go back to Egypt. Now's the time. You go back to Egypt and you lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses said, Lord, I, you got the wrong man for the job. Something's not right here. I'm not your man. <laughs> Who am I to do such a great thing? I tried this once and failed miserably. You got the wrong man, Lord. See what he says in verse 11? And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And look over again, chapter 4. Moses still arguing the point here in verse 10. Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, at one point in his life, Moses wouldn't have said that, would he? Forty years ago, he wouldn't have said this. Forty years ago, 
Moses had to be one of the most educated men in all the earth. This man was a statesman. He was an orator. He operated in the highest levels of the most powerful nation on earth at that time. Now 40 years has passed. He'd been out in the wilderness on the backside of a mountain for 40 years, talking mostly to Jethro's sheep. Moses had forgotten how to speak. It took God 40 years to whittle Moses down his eyes, didn't it? And Moses said, I, I can't speak. I, I, I'll just stammer around and nobody will listen to me because I'm not smooth. Who am I? And you, any preacher worth his salt thinks that every single time he gets up to preach. Who am I? How can I possibly get up and talk to God's people? How can I possibly, with this fleshly tongue, with this failing mind, how can I possibly talk about the eternal God to souls going into eternity? How can I possibly do that? How can I possibly talk about the name of the eternal God? Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. How can I talk about that name? That name that's above every name. How can I possibly talk about the salvation of souls accomplished by the Son of God? How can I possibly do that? And when I have the opportunity to hear somebody preach, I think the same thing. How can I possibly hear? How am I ever going to hear? How can I hear the name of the Lord and believe Him and trust Him? and be? How can I possibly? How can I? I thought that as I'm going through the, the lesson this morning, but God just felt like I floundered around in the deep end, you know. <laughs> How can I possibly? And then Moses asked a very good question. If I'm going to go, what am I going to tell him your name is? Verse 13. Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and I shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, What's his name? What shall I say unto them? Now this is a fair question. If I'm going to go tell somebody, now you listen to me, you believe me, you believe what I'm telling you, and you follow me, you, you trust me. I'm going to take you somewhere. You follow me. I'll, I'll take you where, where we're supposed to go. They're going to say, who are you? They're going to ask the same question I just asked a minute ago. Who are you? Why should I listen to you? Who sent you with this authority? If you look over in chapter 5 of Exodus, you know Pharaoh asked the same question? Exodus 5 verse 2. And Pharaoh said, now, I know he's asking this in a, in a different tone, in a different attitude, but it's the same question. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Who are you? Who is this that sent you? Where did you, the authority that you have came from the one that sent you. Who sent, I mean, did Jethro send you? Did your wife send you? Did, did you know, who's, who sent you? And then God reveals his name to Moses. In verse 14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. God says his name is I am. 
and all the many different names of the Lord, they all mean something. They mean something, describing his character. In the Old Testament, people's names often meant something. Jacob, chief, supplanter, that, that described Jacob, didn't it? Your name means something. And even today, when you hear someone's name, you think about the character of the person that you know. I would warn our young people, now you take care of your name. Your name is your reputation. You take care of your reputation. You conduct yourself well. Don't act like a fool. Conduct yourself well. So when people hear your name, they think of a kind and an honest person, a hardworking person. Don't conduct yourself so when people hear your name, they think about a horse's hind end. Conduct yourself better so when people hear your name, it means something good. It means something good. I'll give you two examples. Two names. Adolf Hitler. Everybody here got an image in your head, didn't you? Just all sorts of evil and wickedness and meanness. That's what that name means, isn't it? And then I thought of the name Abraham Lincoln. Well, you immediately got a thought in your head, didn't you? Here's a man who would protect the union at all costs. He'd protect liberty. He'd protect freedom at all costs. See, those names mean something about those, the character. See, your name means something good. Conduct yourself well. Well, in the same way, the name of our Lord God describes who God is. It tells us what God is like. I want to know the name of the Lord. And to ask what is the name of the Lord is asking this. Who is the Lord? And how does he save sinners? That's what the name of the Lord tells us. And that's what I want us to look at. And I don't just want us to know, uh, I don't know how, academically, what is the Lord's name. Like we could fill in the, the blank, you know. His name is Jehovah Sidkenu. His name is Jehovah Jireh. I want us to consider this. Well, I, we go through this, the name of the Lord, his character. Do I know him? Do I know his name? Do I trust him? That's what I want us to know. Now, the one speaking to Moses here out of the burning bush, he said, his name is I am. This is none other than Christ our Savior. Look over at John chapter 8, and I'll show you that. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ our Savior. I know it's him because this is the name he took to himself. John 8, verse 24. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am. You'll notice that word he is in italics. It's been added by the translators. Our Lord didn't say I am he. He said, if you believe not, I am. You'll die in your sins. Look over verse 58 of the same chapter. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. This is my name. He's telling them, I'm God. I'm the eternal God. And they knew exactly what he was saying. Look at verse 59. And they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. You know, they understood. That's why they're taking up stones, because he made himself to be God. You asked him one time, what, what are you trying to stone me for? 
Is it for my good works? And they said, oh no, it's not for your good works. They said, it's because you being a man make yourself to be God. They understood when he said, my name is I am. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of his people, is God. I don't think we can, we can say that too often. He is, it's not like he's God. He's not a light version of God. He is God. I love thinking about that because if he's God, Chris, he can't fail. He cannot fail to save those he came to save. He's God. And this is our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, speaking to Moses. And when he tells Moses his name, he, he reveals to Moses how he saves sinners. And that's what I want us to look at now. Do I know his name? Do I know God's character? Do I know how it is that he saves sinners? So first, what is the name of the Lord? What's his character? Well, the Lord is self-sufficient. That's his character. Look at uh, Exodus 3 again, verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Oreb. And the angel of the Lord, this is the angel, the messenger of the Lord, the pre-incarnate appearance of our Savior, appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. Now Moses saw there was a bush on fire. The fire kept burning. He expected that fire to, you know, go out. It's probably a small bush. He expected the bush to, you know, and the fire to burn out. But the fire didn't burn out. The bush was not being consumed by the fire. The fire burning in that bush did not need the wood to be fueled. It wasn't burning up the fuel. It wasn't burning up the wood. See, the Lord was in the bush. Was this the fire, the, his Shekinah glory? I don't know. It was a fire of some sort. And the Lord was in the bush giving us a picture of who he is. Our God is self-sufficient. He's in need of no one. He's in need of nothing. The Lord does not need you and me to do something to help him accomplish his will. He's self-sufficient. Now that can be hard for us to understand because that is the polar opposite of you and me, isn't it? We are so totally dependent on God. We need the Lord to give us our very next breath. I mean, you think that the, the most easy thing in this world to do is breathe until the Lord doesn't give you the next breath. I mean, we need Him to breathe. We need Him for the, the next heartbeat. Now, there's not one person here thinking, telling your heart to beat. It just does. We need the Lord to give us the next heartbeat. We need to give us life and health. We need him to give us food and water. You and I can't live for a nanosecond without God. Not a nanosecond. Well, this bush was showing God is is self-sufficient. It burned and was not consumed. But you know, that's also a picture of how God saved sinners. The fire and the wood. This is a picture of Christ and his deity and his humanity. The fire is a picture of the deity of Christ. You know, fire is a picture of the whole holiness, the holy justice, the holiness of Christ, that light to which no man can approach unto. The fire is also a picture of God's judgment against sin. That's what the burnt offering showed. When they offered a burnt offering, that fire that burnt up that offering, that's God's judgment, his wrath against sin. 
And the wood is a picture of the humanity of Christ. Scripture calls him a root out of a dry ground. Well, by the time Christ was born in Bethlehem, David's house, that big tree, was just a twig sticking up out of the desert ground, wasn't it? It was there. It was a twig. It was just a root sticking up out of dry ground. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's both God and He's man. The Son of God, the Son of man. This is heavenly arithmetic. It won't work any other way. He's 100% God and 100% man. And you know that's the only way sinners can be saved. It's by the God-man. He's got to be God so He's holy, can satisfy God. And He's got to be a man so He can be our representative. Take our place as our substitute. Only the God-man could save sinners. And that's what he's showing at this burning bush. Now it doesn't say this, but the meaning of the word, you can look it up, tells us. This is a thorn bush. It wasn't just any old bush, it was a thorn bush, specifically. Now why a thorn bush? Well, you know, thorns are pictures of the curse of sin. Thorns didn't start growing until Adam sinned, did he? God said, cursed is the ground for your sake. Thorns and thistles shall bring up to you. Thorns are a picture of the curse of sin. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless, holy Son of God, came in the flesh. He obeyed God's law perfectly. He established perfect righteousness. And then when he went to Calvary, he was made sin for his people. They didn't just put any old wreath upon his head, did they? When they were mocking him as king. No, they put a crown of thorns on his head. You know what? They probably thought because it'll hurt when we push it down on his head. That's what they thought. God gave that to us as a picture. This is the Savior bearing the curse of sin. Bearing those thorns. He bore the curse of sin. When our Savior was made sin for his people. Again, I just, what you know, went through my head. Who am I to talk about this? How, how can this stammering tongue talk about something so marvelous? When the Son of God was made sin. He bore everything that sin is with the exception of committing it. He bore the guilt of sin. That's why the Father put him to death. He bore the guilt of sin. He bore the shame of sin. He said, I'm not able to look up. His greatest shame wasn't hanging naked on a hunk of wood for people to mock at. He was naked before his Father. He bore the shame of sin. And he suffered everything that sin deserves. He suffered the punishment of that sin. And probably the worst punishment for our Savior, the worst thing that he had to endure was his father separated himself from his son. God's son is the son of his love. Read, read about that in Proverbs chapter 8. He was daily with his father, daily his delight. At Calvary, the father did not give mercy and grace and his loving smile to his son he turned his back on him and gave him all the wrath that a holy God has against sin and poured it out upon his son at Calvary Christ our Savior was made to be the burnt offering for the sin of his people wasn't he he burned under the fire of God's wrath against sin but now here's a question Scripture says our God is a consuming fire. If our God is a consuming fire, why wasn't the Lord Jesus consumed by the fire of his Father's wrath? Huh? 
Why wasn't he consumed? Our God's a consuming fire. The Savior was not consumed. You know why he wasn't consumed? It's because of his holiness. Because of his righteousness. Because he, even though he was made sin for his people, he's still the sinless sacrifice. Now normally, all the sacrifices offered under the law that were burned, normally the fire did consume the sacrifice, didn't it? Just consumed it down to ashes. They disposed of the ashes later on. But when Christ was sacrificed for sin, the fire didn't consume the sacrifice. Christ the sacrifice consumed the fire. Christ suffered under the fiery wrath of his father, his father's hatred of sin. He poured that fire out upon his son until sin was gone. And when sin was gone, the fire quit. When sin was put away under the blood of Christ, the fire quit. The sacrifice consumed the fire, didn't he? That's why the father can say of his people, there's no fury left in me. I poured it all out upon your substitute. Your substitute exhausted it. So there's no fury left for you. All that's left for you is mercy and grace and forgiveness. And when sin was gone and fire went out, then Christ gave up the ghost. See, the fire didn't make him die. It didn't take away life from him. The fire went out because sin's gone and Christ gave up the ghost. It wasn't taken from him. He gave up the ghost. And he died because the law demands death for sin. And Christ died. But you know, he was not destroyed, was he? His body was not consumed. He died, but his body did not see decay. Three days later, he arose from the grave in glorified flesh. Now the scars were still there. The scars from the nails in his hands and his feet. The scar from the, the spear in his side. The, the scars from the, the crown of thorns on his head. But he was raised in glorified flesh. You know why he didn't stay dead? All the sin that was charged to him was gone. See, sin is the reason for death. Where there's no sin, there can't be death. So he was raised from the dead as proof positive. His sacrifice put away all of the sin of all of his people. Now God is just when he forgives the sin of his people. If Christ died for you, the Father is just and right to be merciful to you, to forgive your sin and to accept you. That's the gospel of the burning bush. That's how God saves sinners. All right, number two. Now, what's the Lord's name? What's his character? The Lord is holy. I've heard preachers say that uh, God's main attribute is his love. And uh, they're brethren of mine. You know, the men I I love, they, they make a good case for that. But I tell you what, I have to say this. God's main attribute is his holiness. God is holy. That's his character. Everything he does must be holy. Verse 4. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Now take off your shoes, Moses. Now taking off your shoes at that time, it was a sign of humility and a sign of reverence. Moses could approach the bush. This is where God is. He could approach God. But it had to be in humility. It had to be in reverence. And the same thing is true today. You and I, we can approach God. 
We can come to God. But only in reverence. Only in humility and worship. Really, it's an amazing thing. That Almighty God allows sinners to approach Him. That's got to be in our humility, but He allows it. If we come to God confessing in our humility, there is nothing about me God would accept. There's no merit in me that would make God accept me. The only way I can approach God is to come in Christ, in the merit of Christ, in the person of Christ. You know, if you come that way, you'll be accepted. Come in that humility. There's nothing in me that will make God accept me, but there is in Christ. I'm coming in Him. God accepts you. You can come right to His very throne. Another thing taking your shoes off men at that time was shame. Remember the, the nearer kinsman. He would not redeem Ruth. He, he was the nearer kinsman. He had the right. He had the ability to do it. He had the money to do it. But he said, ah, I'll, I'll mar my inheritance. I can't split my inheritance up that way. And he took off his shoe and walked home. I don't know, it was one shoe on, one shoe off, or his barefoot. I don't know. But the reason he did that was shame. I could have redeemed her. I was a near kinsman. I should have redeemed her, but I didn't. That's my shame. He went, that, taking off your shoes means your shame. I tell you what, come to God in your shame. Don't try to clean up first so you, know, you think I look better and God will accept me because I you know, cleaned up, made myself look better. Come to God in all of your shame. He'll clothe you. He'll take the shame away. But we've got to come in our shame. It, it's shameful that I don't do something that would please God. It's shame, everything about me, my sin, my nature, my, it's shameful. Coming in my own name, it's shameful. But if I come to God that way, He'll accept me. He'll accept me. Then it used to, to be thought of as a person, if they walked around barefoot, that's a poor person, isn't it? A hillbilly going around like, you know, barefoot, little orphan Annie or something, you know. In that way, Loretta Lynn described it, the coal miner's daughter. In the summertime, wouldn't have shoes to wear. She said, that's how she's describing her poverty. This is so amazing. If we approach God in our poverty, bankrupt, penniless, come to Him in our poverty, pleading that Christ is our all, God will accept us. Now, if I come pleading Christ plus my little penny I got, you know, my little bit of goodness I got, He won't accept me. But if I come empty, bankrupt, poverty stricken, I don't have anything but Christ. That's how poor I am. God will accept you. And then this is just me. I don't know if this is you, but I, this is me. I think of barefoot as being comfortable. You know, a lot of our little ones, you know, they, they like take off their shoes all the time. I think, I understand. Boy, as soon as I go home, I take off my shoes. I mean, I just go around the house barefoot and my stocking feet all the time. It's barefoot. That's comfortable, isn't it? Uh, we had uh, Henry and Doris over our house one time and we had dinner and we were sitting there talking and Henry kicked off his shoes and, and put his feet up on the, on the coffee table. And James said, I'm so glad he did that. He felt comfortable. Just take his shoes off and just sit and talk with us. Just comfortable. Do you know a sinner can comfortably confidently come before the throne of grace pleading nothing but Christ pleading just faith in Christ you can come comfortably before almighty God the only explanation for that is God's grace amen God's grace
Now look over at Exodus chapter 34. I told you now God's main character. God is holy. He's holy. He's just. He can't look on sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34 verse 6. This is another time God passed by Moses, proclaiming more of his name to, to Moses. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Now can somebody please explain to me how it is God can forgive sin, forgive iniquity, forgive transgression, but also never, never clear the guilty. How's that possible? Well, the only, the only thing he can be talking about there is the sacrifice of Christ. At Calvary, the Father made His Son, I mean His Son, the Son of His love, made Him sin for His people. Now, I don't know about you, but I would make allowances for my children. I would. If, uh, if uh, I don't know how long ago it was, um, Holly had called her mama and she had a bad day at work, and then a block from my house, I had a rolling stop through a stop sign. It's night after dark, you know. And the policeman was sitting there gave me a ticket. And I think, can't you just let her go? I mean, I know you got to stop at a stop sign, but somebody else's child, I said, yeah, give him a ticket. Not mine. You know, I want to make allowances for my baby, you know. The father is holy. And the greatest evidence of it that I can think of is this. When he made his son sin for his people, he made his son guilty. He did not clear the guilty. He put him to death by his own hand. It was the father that thrust the sword of justice into the heart of his fellow. The father put his son to death because his son had been made guilty. And the father would not clear him. He slaughtered him. And now, because the sacrifice of Christ has put away all of the sin of all of his people, the Father is just and right and holy to forgive sin and iniquity because it was paid for by the blood of his Son. Now you come to God pleading for mercy based on the merit, based upon the sacrifice, based upon the blood of Christ, and the Father, the Holy Father, accept a sinner like you and forgive you. Isn't that something? Oh my goodness, that just makes my hair stand up on end. My spine tingle. Oh, that's the Lord's character. He's holy. He made it so that He is holy and right to forgive the sin of His people. Number three, what's the Lord's name? What's His character now? The Lord God is a covenant God. Verse, verse six, back in our text here. Exodus chapter three. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. 
Now you know why the Lord appeared unto Moses at this time, at this exact time, and told Moses, now's the time, Moses. Forty years ago it wasn't. Now's the time. You go deliver my people Israel from Egypt. You know why he's doing this? Because this is what God promised he'd do. See, God's a covenant God. A covenant is a promise. God promised Abraham, your descendants are going to go down into Egypt for 40 years. For, or 40, 400 years. And after that, I'm going to bring them out. Well, 40 years ago, it was only 360 years. One time, was it? Now is the time God promised he would deliver Israel. And he's doing it. Because God always keeps his promise. This would be a good thing for us to keep in mind. God never reacts to what men are doing. You know that? God doesn't have to always see, oh, they're doing this. I got to make a slight correction here. Kind of like an autopilot on a, on a plane, you know. Now I guess they got autopilots in cars too. I don't know if I ever trust one of those, but they got them. And it just, you know, sees all oh, because of the wind conditions or different conditions. You know, I need to go a little right. I need to go a little left. I need to speed up. I need to slow down a little bit. Constantly making corrections to keep that thing on course. God doesn't have to make corrections to keep his purpose on course. He doesn't react to what men are doing. Men are doing what God determined before to be done. What he purposed for men to do from before the foundation of the world. So everything God does is just fulfilling his covenant. His promise to save his people by his grace. And you know why God saves his people? We keep preaching the gospel. The Lord reveals himself to to some poor soul. And they say, I see. I believe. I believe. I want to confess Christ in baptism. I believe. This is the way he saved me. His death, his burial, his resurrection. You know why God revealed himself to that poor soul? He promised he would. He promised he would. And God's covenant. The fact that God always keeps his promise, that's our assurance of salvation. We could never be confident of salvation if our salvation had to depend on our works to earn it or to keep it. Never could, we could be confident of death. We could be confident of damnation, but we could never be confident of salvation. Oh, but if our salvation is conditioned, is based upon the promise of God, you can be sure of that. You can be sure of it. I don't care how dark the hour, you can be sure of it. Because God always keeps his promise. That's the, that's the assurance of our salvation. All right, fourthly, what's the Lord's name? What's his character? The Lord's the deliverer of his people. Verse 7. And the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. I've heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land, unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me. I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now you take comfort in this. God's people who are tried, suffering in deep waters, you take comfort in this. God always sees his people. Always. He sees our afflictions. He sees the need of his people. Wherever you're at, whatever it is you're going through, the Lord sees you. The Lord sees you. He knows. And he's just waiting. 
the right time to do something about it. He's just waiting. So you cry to him and you keep waiting on him. He hears. He sees your affliction. He hears your cries. Keep crying to the Lord. He always hears. Always. He's just waiting, waiting for the right time to answer. Isn't this the way our Lord taught us to pray? But that woman with the unjust judge, you keep crying out to the Lord. You keep calling on him. He'll hear you. He'll hear you. You know, that kind of prayer, we keep crying on the Lord. We keep crying to him. We keep crying to him. We keep looking to him. You know, that's a good prayer. Because that kind of prayer honors the Lord. It shows our total dependence on him. I'm not going anywhere else. I didn't cry to the Lord for a while and that didn't work. I'll try something else. Now I keep crying to the Lord because I got nowhere else to go. I've got no other hope but Him. He hears. He sees. And people call Moses the deliverer, don't they? But that's not so. The Lord's the deliverer of His people. I know He uses means, but there in verse 8 He says, I am come down to deliver them. This I'm going to do this. The Lord delivered Israel from Egypt as a picture of how he delivers his people from the bondage of sin. The Lord delivered his people through that Passover land, didn't he? Boy, when the firstborn was killed in the house of all those Egyptians, didn't have blood on the door, didn't have a lamb sacrificed for that firstborn, they thrust Israel out, didn't they? They said, we don't want you here anymore. The Lord delivered his people through that Passover land. Well, that's a picture of how God delivers his people from sin. It's by the Lamb of God suffering and dying in their place. Having his blood applied to our hearts. Justice is satisfied. There's been death in this home. So God passes over and spares. That's how God delivers his people from their wrath. They're delivered. The Lord delivered his people by paying the redemption price for their sin. There was a price on their head and the Lord paid it. There was a price... Put on their head by God's own law. God's own justice. And God's the one who paid it. A friend of God. The son. The Lord Jesus Christ died for you. To pay your redemption price. You're going free. The law can't hold you anymore. You're going free. The price has been paid. And by his power. The Lord's going to deliver his people. From trials and afflictions and suffering. He'll keep delivering them. Time and time again. Until it's time to bring you home. Now you take comfort in this. I've never really seen this before, but I read this this week and and it applies to this passage. If you're one of God's children, you're going to endure the fire of trouble, trial, tribulation. But that fire is not going to destroy you any more than it destroyed that bush. The fire will burn off some dross. It'll hurt some. It'll burn off that dross. But you want to get rid of the dross anyway, don't you? But it'll never destroy you. The master refiner will deliver you. He'll deliver you when it's time. He's the deliverer of his people. You just keep looking to him. Keep calling to him. He hears. He sees. Then here's the last thing quickly. What is the Lord's name? His character. He's eternal. Unchanging. Verse 13. And Moses said unto God, Behold, where I am come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of our fathers, your fathers, has sent me unto you. And they shall say unto me, What's his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. 
And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Now the old timers called the name I am the isness of God. The isness of God. God always is. Is. It's not, you can't really say God will be this or God was this. He always is. He's always the same. God dwells outside of time, so he's unaffected by time. The Lord is today what he always was. He just is. And God will always be what he is right now. He is. He's unchanging. His personality never changes. His purpose never changes. The events of our lives do not affect the Lord or change him in any way. He's the one that ordained for them to happen. They don't come to him as a surprise. He ordained for these things to happen before the foundation of the world, so they're not going to change him. Nothing that ever has happened on earth changed the Lord's mind. God created man, put him in the garden, and he fell. And I guess you can't get any worse than dead. You can't get any worse than totally depraved. But it seems... By the way, we look at things. Men just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Finding new ways to sin. New ways of depravity. New ways of debauchery. Nothing that happened in time made God say, I lost my patience with this. I'm not going to send a redeemer for them. Now, in the fullness of time, Christ came and he died for his people. He put their sin away. And as much as we hate our sin now, nothing we do will make God cast us out because the price has been paid. See, that's the assurance we have of our salvation. Our God does not change. What did he say? I am the Lord. Jehovah, that's my name. I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. I don't know about you, but that's the Lord I want to know. And that's, Lord, I want to trust. And I hope we do. Let's bow together. Father, how we thank you for this revelation of your precious name. How we thank you for this revelation of how it is you save sinners in justice and mercy, in truth and grace. Father, how we thank you. And Father, I beg of you that you would take the stammering words of the preacher. And take your word and make your people hear your word. Not the, not the words and ideas of a man, but hear your word. Take your word and apply it to the hearts of your people. Fathers, for your glory, for the glory of Christ our Savior. It is for our good. But Father, for your glory, would you get glory in revealing your name to us here this morning? So we leave here believing trusting in and loving in that precious name. It's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For his glory and his praise we pray. Amen. All right, Sean.